0: morning again. (laughs) Okay, well we're going to read Psalm 90 this morning, so if you could grab your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find our passage um, in the pew Bible on page 496, 496. We're going to start a new brief series this week uh, entitled Dwelling, and so we're going to look at Psalm 90 this week, and Psalm 91 next week, and Psalm 92 the following week, and you'll see why uh, soon enough. Actually, you'll see why this morning. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, stand with me in honor of God's Word. Uh, I'll read, and you can follow along, and then we'll pray and dive in. Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it has passed, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and let your glorious power to their children and and your glorious power, power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so... The new series is called Dwelling. And God dwelling with his people is a huge theme in the Bible. Right off the bat in the garden makes Adam and Eve, and then he's actually dwelling with them. He's walking with them in the garden, right? He's relating to them. He's fellowshipping with them. He's um, in this perfect world and this perfect relationship with them. Um, at the end of the Bible, so the beginning of the Bible starts that way. At the end of the Bible, if you look at Revelation 21, it also ends in a garden that's also a city, but Revelation 21, three says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. In between is this big story of why God kicked us out of the garden. He couldn't dwell with his people, and then he made provision to dwell with his people, even though it was temporary. And then he came down to dwell with his people in his son so that we could then dwell with him perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth like Revelation 21 speaks of. So the storyline is captured really well in this little children's book. I'd recommend it to you. Whether you're an adult or if you have kids, great. Your kids will enjoy it. It's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And there's a little refrain in this book. So it starts out in the garden. talks about sin and the fall and how Adam and Eve were kicked out. And remember, there was those the angels that were kind of stationed with the flaming swords. It's kind of like a big keep-out sign because after the fall and death comes in and corruption and sin and all of this, if Adam and Eve were to eat of the tree of life, they would live forever in this terrible fallen state. That would be not a loving thing. So there was a big keep-out sign, and God couldn't dwell with his people like before. So there's this... uh, Refrain. it goes like this. It's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. So that's what happened as a result of the fall, the rebellion in the garden. Kicked out, you can't come in. So the garden was the dwelling place of God with his people. Sin separated God from his people. Angels guarding the way, keep out. And then later on, you got the tabernacle, which is... I guess the image there is the tabernacle. And, you know, in the tabernacle, and the temple, there's places you can go and places you can't go. The most holy place in the temple, that's where God dwelled with his people, right? But there was a curtain. You can't come in. Only one person can come in here, the great high, or the high priest, and only once a year. Okay, so God is dwelling with his people, but veiled behind this curtain, you need... Priest to sacrifice, sacrifice of atonement in order to make it possible for God to dwell with his sinful people without destroying them. Okay, So the way back to God, to dwelling with God, needed to be opened because otherwise God can't dwell with his sinful people and that's just what God did in Christ. So Jesus came and dwelt with us, God in the flesh, dwelling with us so that the keep out sign could be torn up and thrown away. So that curtain was torn when Jesus died on the cross. It was torn from the top to the bottom. So who did the tearing? God did it. He opened the way by his grace. Totally removed. We can draw near with confidence when we're in Christ. We can go in. We can come home. We can dwell with God again. So That's what the gospel is all about. So then the refrain expands a little bit as the story goes along. So God says it's wonderful to live with him because of your sin you can't come in, but I died on the cross to take your sin so all my friends can now come in. Okay? Good little rhyming reminder of the gospel. So now because of Jesus, those who are trusting in Jesus as their Savior, those who are in Christ They've got a permanent home. You and I have a permanent home, dwelling place. That's what this series is all about. But this series is also all about the fact that it's really easy to forget that. It's really easy to feel like we don't have a permanent home. Any of you ever feel all alone? You ever feel abandoned? You ever feel rejected? Do you ever feel rootless or disconnected or lonely or alienated or restless or hopeless? So what do we do when we feel that way? We can know things are true but struggle to know things are true. So we need to know what we have because of who we have. We have a home because we have God. We need to know who we are because of whose we are. We may know that it's true, but we need to appropriate what is true. And Psalm 90 is a good place to start. Psalm 91 is a good place to go next. And Psalm 92 is a good place to go after that. Okay. So as you see in the outline in the bulletin, if if you're using that or the slides will be up here, the outline is basically a sentence. Okay. So the sentence goes like this. You have a permanent address. This is a quote from an Old Testament um, commentator, scholar named Alec Motir, You have a permanent address. Make sure you're living there. That's actually, in a sense, a summary of the series. Um, So what does that mean? Well, we'll be unpacking that in the next few weeks from Psalm 90, 92, and a few other texts. But again, the point of this dwelling series is that our home is in God, okay? Not ultimately a place, but a person. God himself is our home. He is our dwelling place. He's our refuge. He's our shelter. It's in him. That's where we belong. But obviously we don't always live that way. We don't always feel that way. So we need to be reminded that we do have a permanent address, (laughs) a permanent home. And we would do well to make sure we're living there. So here's how Alec Motier says it in the rest of that, that quote. He calls it claiming our residence. Okay, You have a permanent address. Make sure you're living there. How did our psalms make this point? On the one hand, Yahweh is our dwelling place. On the other, I keep saying about Yahweh, and he's quoting from the psalms, my refuge and my stronghold, my God in whom I ever trust. And then he says, you, because the psalmist is praying, you, Yahweh, are my refuge So he writes this. He says, The dwelling place is mine by divine appointment. Let it also be mine by constant choice. Deliberate personal reminder. Personal affirmation of what is the real truth about me. So if you're in Christ, the real truth about you is not that you're lonely and abandoned and rejected and, you know, oh no. The real truth is that you've got a home. You've got a father that will never leave you or forsake you. You've got all this good news that you need to keep preaching to your soul so that you make sure you live there. So get the idea? That's kind of where we're going, and we're just going to go on repeat for the next couple weeks because we need to beat this into our heads and into our hearts. So let's start with Psalm 90. You have a permanent address. Look at the first two verses here. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he's our dwelling place. What is that? What does it mean that God has been or is our dwelling place? Well, he's our place of safety. He is our place of belonging. This is your home. This is your habitation. This is your place of dwelling. This is your refuge. So did you notice to whom the psalm is ascribed? See that little superscription up there, a prayer of Moses. Who better to write this psalm and to help us kind of process this that we need to know about our permanent home Who better to help us with that than Moses? Think about his life. He knew that the people of God had been displaced, strangers in a strange land in Egypt, for how long? 400 years, okay? And then what about his life? He gets thrown in a basket rather than getting killed and ends up displaced from his family. So he doesn't doesn't even get to... Be raised in his own home. He's raised in Pharaoh's household. Right? So he's displaced from his family from the get-go. He gets older, sees his people suffering. He kills this guy that's, you know, treating, mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews. And what does he have to do? He flees. He flees to Midian for like 40 years. He's in exile. After the exodus, what happens? He's in the wilderness and everybody lived happily ever after, right? No. He wandered with the sinful people of Israel for 40 years like a nomad and he didn't even get to go in the promised land. So he also could look back to the forefathers and see the same thing. Abraham, right? When he met the Lord he left his home in Ur of the Chaldeans became a nomad. So even when he ended up in the land of promise, he lived in tents because as the writer of Hebrews says, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So here's the point. No matter what your circumstances, you can have a dwelling place with God. Even if you're homeless, you have a permanent address. You have a safe place even if there are threats, if your safe place is in God. God is and can be our dwelling place, our home, where we belong, where we are known, where we are loved. So if you're in Christ, you have a permanent address. That's point number one. So point number two, make sure you're living there. We need to appropriate what's already true. It's that, you know, 18 inches longest distance thing between your head and your heart. Getting what we know here to be real down here. I think we all know how important that is, right? We know how it's easy to know information about God but struggle to really believe it or appropriate it, for it to be real. So you know that God's good, right? Does the Bible say that God's good? Okay. You ever struggle with whether he's good To you, don't you want to taste and see that the Lord is good? Don't you want that information to transform you, for you to taste it and experience it? Don't you want that? So that's the appropriation of the truth. You want what's true to be real. And that's what we're talking about here. We have a permanent address, a dwelling place. We all need to make sure we're living there. So it's easy to read, for instance, the sentence, God loves me. It's harder to know that deep down in your bones. It's easy to kind of like go through life as a Christian, you know, aware of your sin and failings and, you know, just think that God barely puts up with you. And you've got like this low-grade guilt that you deal with all the time and you're kind of like, God loves me, but... Well, that's why Paul prays for the Ephesian church. He says that they, he prays that they would have strength to comprehend the dimensions of God's love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's experiential. Make it real. I know it's true. Make it real. So if you're in Christ, you have a dwelling place, you're never going to be homeless spiritually, even if you're homeless circumstantially. God's never going to evict you from his kingdom from your place in his household. That's the kind of news we need, right? <laughs> because there, it's hard. It's hard to believe it. We need to keep appropriating this, and that's the whole point of this series. There's obstacles that make it difficult to live what is true, to know for real what is true. We suffer. We wonder if God's with us, if he loves us, if he's abandoned us. We struggle with loneliness, feeling displaced, never quite feel at home, feel out of place. Once again, Psalm 90 is so helpful because there were big obstacles for Moses, and he's going to unpack them here as he goes along. So Moses had seen some serious trouble. Again, just imagine this struggle. The vast majority of the so-called people of God in his lifetime— the vast majority of the people that he led out of Egypt, they lived under the wrath of God until they died in the wilderness. So you remember all the hard-hearted unbelief, the idolatry, the grumbling, they're even preferring to go back to slavery. It was like that was better than being with God, dwelling with God in the wilderness, going with him to the promised land. And what did God say? Psalm 95, 11 captures it. I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. So that entire unbelieving generation died in the wilderness. The only people that were going to go into the promised land were the children, right? As they got older. So 40 years in the wilderness, waiting for all these people to die off. They're literally killing time. How many people came out of Egypt? Do you remember it? In Exodus 12, 600,000 men besides women and children. Okay, so let's go with a really safe estimate. A million people needed to die before they went into the promised land. That's like definitely a low estimate. If you are in the wilderness for 40 years and you need to wait for a million people to die... Do you know how many people that is a day? That's like 70 people a day. So I think we read Psalm 90 and we read it disconnected from the context. Oh, no. Moses is talking about his experience. Okay? So there's like 70 people dying every day. Talk about a culture of futility and death. Talk about living under the wrath of God. So verses 3 to 11 describe these obstacles and we can summarize them under the headings fragility and fallenness, okay, our, how, how short vapor-like our lives are and our fallenness, our sinfulness and all of that. So look at verses 3 to 11 here and think about the wilderness. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. So this is Genesis 3, the result of the fall. From dust you came to dust you you shall return. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's passed, or as a watch in the night. Watch in the night's like three to four hours. Okay? So even Methuselah, who lived 969 years, his life is like a day in God's sight. God is infinite, everlasting to everlasting. Verses one and two. We are finite and small and fragile, and our lives are like a vapor. And then there's our sin, our fallenness. Verse 5, You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We all tend to downplay our sin. And so who really considers the power of God's anger and his wrath according to what is due him? We don't think about that very often. <laughs> in fact, nobody really does fully grasp it. So we need wisdom. We need God to teach us to number our days, verse 12, that we would gain a heart of wisdom. But do you see how this is, this is a picture of their life in the wilderness? This is what life was like for Moses and the people of God because of their sin. So we need to look reality in the face, not stick our heads in the sand. Even though we're not in the same situation as those Israelites, still our lives are fragile and we are fallen. Our life is a vapor. We need the Lord to teach us to number our days so that we gain a heart of wisdom. I mean, this is why, in one sense, a funeral is better than a, a wedding, at least in one sense. Ecclesiastes 7 2 says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. How often do you ponder your vapor-like nature? How often do you ponder your death? We kinda wanna avoid that like the plague. We wanna be busy, we wanna turn up the noise so that we don't have to think about it. But wisdom says we're gonna look reality in the face. That our lives are a vapor and we need to be ready So, I mean, if you think about it, if we're foolish about how transient our life is, how vapor-like it is, if we think we've got all the time in the world, we will oftentimes make really dumb decisions and we'll try to find our meaning and satisfaction and permanence in places other than God. It's never going to satisfy us. So wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. He holds our lives in his hand teach us to number our days that we would gain a heart of wisdom. So that's how Moses prays. But let's just step back here. Verses 3 to 11. Remember, they're in that context. He's writing on behalf of the people of God. It just seems like death and return to dust is all around him, and it's going to just go on forever And so he doesn't just pray for the people of God to, and for himself, to gain a heart of wisdom to number his days. He knows that we all need more than just wisdom to know how finite and fragile and fallen we are. We need God to come and rescue us. We need mercy. So he cries out for God to do something. That's where he goes in verses 13 to 17. So Moses knows that God is the answer okay? His return to come and dwell with his people again, to deliver them, is what they need. They need him to show up and save them. They need him to show up and save them. But Moses, at this point, he doesn't know how that's going to happen. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. He's just asking that it would happen. We've got a different vantage point because we see how God answered this. He knows God is dwelling place throughout all generations. He knows of God's faithfulness in the past. He knows that the people of God need a new day, a new beginning. They need rescued. But he has no idea how it's going to come about. So here's how he prays. Verse 13, return, O Lord. In other words, come and dwell with us. How long will you wait? Have pity, have compassion on your servants. "'Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love "'that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. "'Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us "'and for as many years as we have seen evil.'" Which at the beginning of the psalm, all their days have passed under his wrath. So it's a reversal he's asking for, right? "'Let your work be shown to your servants "'and your glorious power to their children.'" Show up and do something. Save us. This has got to change. Verse 17, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So, like I said, we already know when and how God answered these prayers. I mean, this is just, these verses 13 to 17 are just begging for Jesus to come, aren't they? It's Emmanuel, God with us, dwelling with us, that answers all of these prayers. And then these prayers become ours on our lips, and God answers them for us as well. So the Lord did return, right? So we're no longer under his wrath if we're in Christ. We're under grace. We're under the favor and acceptance and love of God. We belong. We've got a home. God is our dwelling place forever and always. Look at verse 13. Have pity on your servants. Again, this is what moved the heart of God to come down and dwell with us to save us. This heart of compassion and pity instead of anger and wrath in order to deal with and get out of the way that anger and wrath that was separating us from him. Verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So instead of futility and emptiness and disappointment, satisfy us, give us joy, make us glad. How in the world can you rejoice in the Lord always? Well, you can because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because we have a permanent home, because we are eternally safe. We're no longer under wrath, we're under grace. So we can rejoice in the Lord always. No one and no thing can take him from us. So make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, as many years as we've seen evil. Oh yeah, he'll do that and infinitely more. Not just as many days, but infinitely more days because we're going to be glad forever. So yeah, we've got to endure this valley of tears. You know, Psalm 30, verse 5, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. But we are going to rejoice forever because of how Jesus came and answered these prayers. Verse 16, Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power be shown to their children, the work of God. He showed it most clearly, most ultimately in Jesus It is finished. The work is done. And he rescued us so that he could bring us in, bring us home. And as a result of showing us that work, his favor, even his beauty, rests upon us. That word favor can can also be translated beauty. So we're under his grace. That grace transforms us into the image and likeness of Jesus. And that changes the meaning and purpose and satisfaction in this life. So rather than curse and futility in our work, I mean, just think about how pointless it would seem to those folks in the wilderness for 40 years, just not going anywhere. Talk about futility and the curse. But because of Jesus, all of that is reversed, and curse and futility turns to blessing and favor and satisfaction Our lives can count for eternity. Our work is not in vain in the Lord, all because of Jesus, his death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is true for his people. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we have a permanent home. We have a permanent address in Christ. We need to make sure we're living there, believing the truths of the gospel so that it shapes all of our life. So God came and dwelt with us in order to give us a permanent home, and he gives us his word, he gives us these gospel reminders, he gives us his spirit's help, he gives us the prayers of the saints to make it real to us so that we can make sure we're living there With God as our dwelling place, our permanent address. So what, like if we really believe this, if it's really real, what does that say to our anxiety? Does it have anything to say to that? Any help for that? What does it have to say to our fear, to our loneliness, to our sense of displacement, hopelessness, feelings of not belonging? Yes, of course We are still in a very real sense in exile until Jesus comes home and takes us home forever. But we are pilgrims heading home. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's already locked up because God himself has already given us a home. So we need to know we have a permanent home even though we're not there yet. You have a permanent address. Make sure you're living there. Okay, so I'm going to close with Kind of an extended quote. I read this, um, and then we're going to have some time for community discussion. I read this little blog post, I think it was, several weeks back and was just blown away by it, shared it with some people, and it's really fitting here. It's called Death is a Vapor. So James 4, life is a vapor, but actually death is a vapor. It's written by a guy named Brian Sov. Nearly 60 million people die every year on planet Earth. Just let that sink in. 60 million people die every year on planet Earth. The fact that they take so little time to consider death is bewildering. Human beings will do nearly anything to avert their eyes from death. It's a pathological and universal impulse. Try to turn your mind to the thought that your body will one day decompose, that your brain, your heart, your skin, your muscles will sprout, mold, and shrivel up and return to dust. and you will encounter a powerful hesitance. In the end, all of our efforts to avert our eyes from death will fail. Someday, whether near or far, death will step in front of you and hold your gaze. All your strategies to avoid it and ignore it will fail. It will take you in its teeth and clamp down. At that moment, you will see what you were trying not to see. Everything Adam, everything rotting, everything bending towards terminal illness and stark hospital beds and intravenous streams of chemicals keeping bodies clinging to life. We're seeds germinating in cliff cracks. Death reigns. Corruption is law. Life, James wrote, is a vapor. But there is something we may be missing. Life is a vapor, but only under the sun. It's the language of Ecclesiastes in this fallen world. If this fallen world is a shadow of the real, then maybe death is the real divergence. Maybe we're actually not all that good at seeing what is passing and what is permanent and knowing the difference between the two. Flannery O'Connor saw clear through the dark and into the real world. In a letter to a friend, she wrote, For me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, the resurrection, which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, destruction are the suspension of these laws. Now, there's an idea. What if death is the vapor? What if Christ came not to suspend the rules, but to restore them? What if he wasn't suspending the law when he conjured up seeing where there was blindness and living children from dead ones? What if he was putting it back in order? Maybe we go to the Gospels with this fixed notion that resurrection is unnatural when it's really death that is so unnatural. What we need is a better reckoning of what is and what is not the most real world. We need a better reckoning of what is inevitable and what is fleeting, of what is emerging and what is retreating. See, if we would climb into Jesus' eyes and look out over the landscape of reality in the direction he's aiming them from the Father's right hand, we would see a horizon approaching where death draws its final rattling breath where, as the apostle wrote, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. If I'm reading my Bible right, creation isn't really dying so much as waiting. It's groaning in its waiting, yes. You can hear its sad sighing in every stillborn child and influenza epidemic, but it will sing with joy long after the sighs are forgotten. Death is fleeing, and it is fleeting, because Christ has conquered, and he is conquering. His was a coronating crucifixion, a regnant resurrection. Life is a vapor for a moment, but death is a vapor forever. Any amen to that? Life is a vapor for a moment, but death is a vapor forever. So yes, we bloom in bodies cursed and feel the magnet pull of the grave. Yes, we sometimes grow tumors in our brains and blockages in our arteries. But if we listen to the song Scripture's singing, this sighing and dying creation is really leaning into new creation. Death gets some verses, but life takes the chorus. The word of resurrection is quivering on the tip of Jesus' tongue, ready to split air and atom like a trumpet blast, ready to rend the heavens and make it all new. And so we weep with the psalmist, teach me to number my days. But we look into our own mortal futures and we lean over our friends' coffins and whisper, teach me to number death's days. Lord, you have been your people's dwelling place in generation after generation. And we thank you that because of Jesus, you are our dwelling place. Thank you that you sent him, that he willingly came to dwell with us so that we could dwell with you. so that we could be at home, at peace, reconciled to you now through his death on the cross, in our place, for our sins, removing the obstacle of our sin, and then the promise of being with you forever. Fullness of joy forevermore at your right hand you dwelling with your people forever. Nothing in the way. We will see your face. So as we go through this valley of tears, as we struggle with all kinds of unmet longings and desires, all kinds of frustrations and Frailty, would you please remind us of the permanent home that is ours, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you are with us even to the end of the age and forevermore, that you are our refuge and our strength and a very present help in trouble. That you are our satisfaction and our joy, and that in Christ we can rejoice. So, would you please teach us to number our days, that we would be wise in our hearts, that we would not buy the fleeting lies and pleasures and temptations of this world as if that's where. Satisfaction is to be found. Life is to be found. Refuge is to be found. I pray that we would be satisfied in you and we would be a joyful, happy people that want others to get in on the relationship, the safety, the security, the hope that we found in you. We want to spend our lives well, so let your favor rest on us. Your beauty shine from us by your grace and help us to spend our lives well. And as we do, would you establish the work of our hands so that what we do matters for eternity. Do it, Lord, for your glory and for the good of your people and the good of those that you will give us to love. In Jesus' name, amen.